Good morning. It is great to see everyone this morning. Happy Easter to you guys. Um, I want to let you in on a little secret. Uh, maybe a, a, a quick glimpse into the mind of a pastor on Easter Sunday. Um, for several years, I struggled to write an Easter message. And it may seem surprising to you. You may think this is pretty much the same sermon every year, and, and that's the problem. As I approach the Easter message, I, I, I put this pressure on myself, and maybe if you've given an Easter message, you've done the same thing. Like, I put this pressure on myself to, to think, how can I do something groundbreaking? How can I give you a message that's memorable, something that sticks with you? Maybe that is some sort of funny illustration, or, or maybe I can give you a witty analogy, and that's going to be the thing that finally draws you in. But the hard part is for 2,000 years, the message hasn't changed. For 2,000 years, the Easter message has been central to what you and I claim to believe, and, and yet what I thought was, how can I add to it? How can I do something to pretty this up so that you finally get it? And what I've come to the conclusion of is that the gospel message needs no help from me. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus needs nothing added to it to make it more powerful in your mind and in mine. And so this morning, uh, my uh, attempt is not to do anything different. Uh, my attempt is, is not to try to draw you in with any of my own words, but yet to simply give you what Scripture says. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to start maybe in a different place, but rest assured, we're going to work back to the familiar message that you know. And so we're going to start at the end. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Now to give you some context, the, the book of Revelation as a whole is dictated to John, the disciple of Jesus, as to what will take place at the end of all things, but he starts in the first three chapters by writing a message, writing a letter to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, Turkey as we would know that. And by the way, uh, we're going to study Revelation 1 through 3 uh, later on this fall, and then hopefully at the beginning, middle of 2024, we're going to tackle the rest of the letter as well. So uh, I would love for you to be a part of that to see how rich this text is. But what you're going to find is that as John starts to write this letter, as Jesus is dictating it to him, he's, he's encouraging some churches, he's warning other churches, and, and all the time, the central message in this letter is this is who Jesus is, and, and this is what he's done. In fact, as you look through the Bible, what you should find is that Jesus is the central character. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about me. The Bible speaks to who Christ is and what he's done. And so in this moment in Revelation chapter 5, you're, you're seeing a glimpse of the throne room of God. In fact, I, I love how chapter 4 uh, starts. John, just finishing writing or, or, or reciting this letter that Jesus has given him to these seven churches, has a moment where in the Spirit it says, come up here, and he gets a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. Gosh, the, the picture that is on display as to the holiness of God. He gives these details as best as he can, and the point of all that is to show you God is holy. God is worthy. 
And we get to chapter 5, and, and it's right on the heels of this. And there's 24 elders at the end of chapter 4. And confronted with the glory of God and his power that far surpasses anything they've seen before, they say this, God, as they lay down their crowns, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And it's in this moment that this letter shifts to this next scene we see in Revelation chapter 5. And in this moment, what John is going to see is this movement that comes from the throne. That God begins to stir. So listen to what John sees. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, as you you see this imagery in your mind, understand that this was very common in the day in which it was written. Uh, Scrolls were were not something that was out of place, as they may be in our culture today, but a scroll usually held one of three things. Uh, A scroll held an official document. A scroll held a will, normally of somebody of of high ranking, an official or, or, or some royalty. Or then in this case, a title or a deed. So in Revelation 5, verse 1, as you see God start to stir, what you're going to see is that God is extending the title and deed to the earth. He's asking the question, who's going who's to take it back? Who's going to redeem the earth? God is stretching out his hand and saying, the earth needs redeemed. The earth needs to be won back. Who who can take the scroll? Who's worthy to open it to see what it says? Let me get to verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Don't miss what's being said here. The angel is declaring, who, who can redeem the earth? Who's going to save the lost? You see, this is, this is the question that we still ask. Who's, who's able to save? Who's able to redeem all things? As you came in here this morning, understand that, that apart from Christ, this is the question that, that you still ask or certainly asked of you. The default position of all of humanity is under the judgment of sin. Like As you came in here, if you have not called upon the name of Christ and looked to him for repentance, this is what is said of you. Who's, who's going to save me? Who's going to redeem me? And the hard part is, is so often the answer for you is, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to manufacture this myself. I'm going to figure out how to save myself. And it leads us to say things like, well, I'm a good person. Especially as compared to somebody else. The problem with what we're going to see moving forward 
throughout the biblical narrative this morning is that it's not enough. If you've come in here this morning expecting that if I just do enough good things, that, that, that if my good outweighs the bad, then hopefully at the end I'll, I'll be allowed to enter into the presence of God. The reality is, is you don't understand sin. You, you, you don't understand it. So the question that we have to come back to, and it's why seeing the context of Revelation chapter 4 is so important. You see the holiness of God. And what you start to recognize is, man, I, I, can't, even, I can't even walk in his presence. This is what the elders realize. Like, I'm not, I'm not worthy to stand before you. Because of our sin, this is, this is you and I. I'm, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm certainly not worthy to save myself. I'm certainly not worthy to redeem the earth. And this is the story of all of humanity since the beginning in the garden. The reason why the end is so important is so that you can see that all throughout the storyline of humanity, this, this has been the problem. No matter how good life appears to you in this moment, this is the problem that you find yourself in. So jump back. We've, we've gone somewhat to the end. Let's go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. It's the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. It's the moment that, that all of perfection that is in humanity has been fractured and we are left in the state that you and I still find ourselves in today apart from Jesus. This is where we come to. Genesis 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's, it's the moment that sin and death entered into humanity. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the moment that if, if you feel like if you feel like something is broken, as you look at the world and, and you, you come to this conclusion, something, something's not right. Something's been lost. Something needs saved. Something is fractured. It stemmed from here. And it's been the story of all of humanity ever since this moment. So the reason why this is important as it relates to Revelation chapter 5 is, is if you see yourself and your sin for who it really is, you start to recognize that I, there's nothing in me that can save myself. And apart from Christ, we are a people to be pitied. So as the angel asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? This is, this is the cry of all of us too. Like who is going to save us? Who's going to redeem what is lost? So jump back to Revelation chapter 5 verse 3. John writes, but no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Again, it speaks to the predicament that you're in. 
It speaks to the predicament that I'm in. Every single one of us, this is where we find ourselves. No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth is worthy to open the scroll. In other words, what what John is trying to communicate to us is there is no one that can save or redeem what we've broken. You're incapable of saving yourself. I'm incapable of saving myself. And so the truth of this matter is this, that as we all recognize something in me is broken, I'm just like Paul, there's things that I don't want to do, and there's something in me that makes me do it. Or as I I look at the creation, I look at the world, I see that something is off. What John has expressed here in verse 3 is this, don't look for salvation in yourself. You're not worthy. You're not able to redeem. You're not able to restore. Young people, don't, don't look to your parents' faith to save you. They're not worthy. Church, don't look to your pastor to preach you into heaven. He's not worthy. The central focus of what John is trying to say is is that nothing outside of Christ is worthy or able to save. And for those of you who have bought into this lie that that salvation is found in your moral goodness, it's not going to end well. For those of you who have bought into the lie that that I come to church every Sunday, this is just what I do, this is my tradition, but yet I've seen no life change in me. John has said, a a tradition isn't worthy to save you. It's not powerful enough to save you. No one else. The faith of your spouse, the faith of your parents, the faith of your grandparents, there, there is no one who is worthy to save. And when you start to recognize this, that, that you can't save yourself, that the people around you, that, that, that a, a place that you go to on Sunday morning, no matter how long you've been, if that is where you're putting your hope, then you're still asking the same question, whether you recognize it or not, who can save me? Because it's not this. It's not in me. It's not in them. It doesn't take us long to recognize this. If we're honest with ourselves, I am unable to save myself. As I step out and then I, I expand my view to all of creation, as, as beautiful as the earth is, and I can't help but look at it and see something, something's fallen. Something's fractured. Something needs redeemed. And Paul in Romans 8, we, we studied this a few months back. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that, that the reason you feel like this is because it's true. He says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Meaning that everywhere you look, everywhere, No matter how beautiful creation is, all of it is asking who is going to save us? Who's going to redeem us? Because we're fallen. 
Verse 23 of Romans 8, Paul says, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Even those who, who, have, who have repented, who have confessed the name of Christ and who have trusted in him still recognize we're not there yet. There's still something in me that needs redeemed. Even as I've, I believed in Jesus and he's making me more and more into his image, I realize I'm not there yet. So all of creation is asking the same question that the angel declares in Romans chapter, or excuse me, Revelation chapter five, verse three. Who's worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to redeem? Who's worthy to save? So Paul, or excuse me, Jane, goodness, John, one of them, writes in Revelation chapter five, beginning in verse four. He says, I, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John is not weeping because he, he's unaware of Christ. Think of who John is. John has spent three years watching Jesus' ministry, recognizing that Jesus is who he claims to be. He's seen him perform miracles. He's seen him heal. He's heard his teaching that, that was given with this authority that, that no one else possessed. John believes, Jesus, you are the Savior. So John is not saying, I, I'm unaware of Jesus, but he recognizes that something's been lost. He recognizes the pain. I mean, think, think about what John has seen. John has seen his Lord and Savior hanging on the cross. John has recognized this, this Savior who has, who has done nothing wrong. Has been beat almost beyond recognition. It says nails driven through his hands, through his feet, has died a criminal's death that John recognizes that this should have been me. John, as he writes this, is the last living disciple. Those first who have, have heard the message of Christ have now been tasked with going and taking it and sharing it around the world. And John recognizes they've, they've all been killed, Lord. I'm the only one that's left. And, and even John, after, right before this, has been attempted to be boiled alive. John has given his life for the gospel. He recognizes suffering. But John doesn't just weep for himself. John doesn't just weep for his friends. John weeps for all of humanity. John recognizes that sin has taken its toll on humanity, on creation. John knows the story of Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden and, and, and recognizing that, that because of our sin, this is, this is broken. John weeps because he thinks of Adam and Eve as they dug the first grave for their son Abel. Recognizing sin Sin has brought death. John weeps as he thinks about those who have, have given their life for the gospel. Uh, 
who have been beaten, who have been murdered, who have been ostracized from all of society. John doesn't weep because he thinks Jesus is unable. John weeps because he's, he's wondering, Lord, how long? How long? How long must humanity suffer? How long until you redeem? So John sees this scene where the scroll is being held out. And we don't know how long John watches this and sees this, this pause in time when all of heaven is waiting. It's, it's the spot that you and I find ourselves in now. God, how How long? How long are you going to be patient with humanity? How long are you going to put up with sin? How, how long, Lord, for those who believe, how, how long are we going to suffer, Lord? Where are you? Come and redeem us. John weeps in this moment. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, so the question is, Lord, how long? The question in the throne room is, is, is who is worthy, who is powerful enough to save what's been lost, to, to redeem humanity, to redeem those who had claimed the name of Christ? And, and John is weeping, Lord, where are you? And the elder says, look, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. He's powerful enough to redeem what's been lost. Weep no more. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, and, and this is a picture of perfect strength. Horns and eyes, it's a picture of perfect strength. Which of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth? He went and took the scroll. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Why is today such a day of celebration? Why is today good news for sinful humanity? Because as John writes, as Jesus is giving him this picture of heaven, he is worthy. He's able. He's powerful enough to save what was lost. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The question that may be ringing in your mind, especially if, if you haven't heard this story much, is, is how? How is he able, how has he redeemed what is lost? If you want to turn and, and follow with me, it's not going to be on your screen, but I'm going to read this story to you. I'm going to read out of Mark 
15, beginning in verse 20, or excuse me, 33. With the question hanging over us, how is he worthy? How is he redeemed? How is he saved? Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, as Jesus is hanging from the cross, he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. This is just free. This is not a final act of hospitality. Um, in, in those days, a sponge dipped in wine vinegar was, was used to clean the toilets of the day. This is not an act of hospitality. This is one final act of torture. Now leave him alone. And let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, this, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. And so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was wait, himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, and wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who rolled the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. In other words, they said, you came looking for a dead man where a dead man should be. But he's no dead man. He's risen. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him just as he told you. 
trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. As we approach this this story, a story that maybe you've heard hundreds of times, what's important for you to recognize is this. As we as we put the cross and the empty tomb on, on full display, the reality of it is the cross is either our salvation or judgment on those who fail to believe in Christ. This is the paradox of the cross. It, it is either good news of salvation that is here and redemption to fully come at the end of all things, or it is a pronouncement of judgment on those who would reject it. Because on the cross, your sin was taken. This is not, this is not a criminal being executed judgment because of what he's done. This is God Almighty, perfect, taking the sin that was due for you. Taking the wrath that should have been poured out on you. And the cross is an expression of this. That your sin will either be handled and poured out on God, or all of God's wrath for your sin will be poured out on you. This, this is where we come to when we come to the cross. It is salvation for those who believe or a pronouncement of judgment for those who reject. So who, who is worthy? Who is worthy who is able, who is powerful enough to save. The answer because of the cross and the resurrection is only Christ. It is only Christ. Christ alone. He is worthy to be saved. My plea to you is this. For those who have, have walked this life and, and, and rejected the cross. For those of you who have heard this message and have yet to respond, hear me in this. This is the only way of salvation. If you're bent living a life of, of doing enough moral good, you're going to find at the end of all things you haven't moved an inch closer. And the penalty of your sin will be poured out on you for all of eternity. Or we can trust in the one who is worthy. The one who has took your sin, took the wrath of God on himself. The one who has proved through rising from the dead that death cannot hold him, that he has power over the grave, and that you will too. So we end this section of Revelation 5 with Jesus taking the scroll. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And the question is, why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. It's my hope this morning that, that this would not be something where you leave and, and say, man, that was a, a great service, but walk out unchanged. If we've come in here just because it's what we feel like the right moral thing to do or it's become a family tradition and we leave unchanged by the message of Christ, we've wasted our time. The reality of what we've seen this morning through the end of all things and, and, and through the cross and the empty tomb is this declaration that there is one who is able to save. And it's Christ. Apart from Jesus, you and I are dead in our sins, not just now, but for all of eternity. So what do I want you to leave with this morning? I want you to see Christ for who he really is. I want you to see him for his holiness. I want you to see him in his righteousness and, and in all that. I want you to see that as broken and as sinful as you were and as, and as powerful and as mighty as he is, he humbled himself to the cross for you. What do I want you to leave with this morning? I, I want you to understand the gospel message. Everybody, whether you recognize it or not, is crying out the same thing that we've seen this morning. Who's, who's going to save me? Who's going to redeem what's broken? And the answer emphatically, throughout the Bible, is the one who is able to save is the one who was born of a virgin. Why is this significant? We recognize that we are born into sin. Christ had to be born of a virgin. He is, he is said to be born of abnormal generation, meaning he's not born in the same way the rest of us are. He is born of a virgin so that he is without sin. He does not have a sinful nature. Why does this matter? Because he has to be perfect. To be the sacrifice for you and I, he has to be perfect. And he is That as he was born, he lived a sinless life, something that you and I are incapable of, and you recognize this if you're honest. That he's lived the life that you couldn't. And though he was worthy of everything, he humbled himself to the cross. You deserve wrath. I deserve wrath, not him. And yet he took it upon himself. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And in an act of showing that he is 
over death, that he has power over the grave, showing that he is the one who is worthy. He's risen three days later. We do not serve a God who's dead. We serve a risen Savior. Why is this significant? Because the promise at the end of all things is that for those who have trusted in Christ and what he's done on the cross will be raised to life forever too. So what do I want you to see as you walk out this morning? I want you to see Christ. I want you to see that he alone can save. There's a pivotal moment in the life of the church that's found in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches this same message. He says to the people that have gathered in Jerusalem, this Jesus whom you've crucified... He's been raised to life. He sits at the right hand of the Father for your salvation. You are dead in your sin. Christ can make you alive. And they ask this question, what should we do? Knowing this truth, where do we go? Peter says, repent. Turn from your sin, meaning quit trusting in yourself. Trust in Christ. Be baptized. We take that command seriously here. We don't enter into our relationship with Christ, trusting in him and then looking for loopholes around doing what he said to do. And so this morning, I I want to offer this to you. That with the gospel message on full display, understanding who you are because of your sin, dead because of sin, the offer is Christ. Christ has come to save. Christ has come to make you alive, not just now, but forever. Maybe the question in your mind is, what do I do? We confess our sins. We confess that he is who he says he is. We confess that he is Lord, and then we walk in obedience to him and be baptized. We recognize that that as we lay this, this invitation out, there are a thousand reasons why you shouldn't, why you can't, Here's the deal. Every, every time that somebody is cut to the heart with the gospel message and, and the, the realization is, I, I've got to do what he said to do, it's now. It's now. So, so the time to repent, the time to confess, the time to walk in obedience to him in baptism is now. And so as best we can, we've, we've taken those excuses away. Um, this morning, we've got shirts, we've got shorts, everything, I, even down to underwear. We've got everything that you need so that there is no excuses. New underwear. Everything that you need. <laughs> I don't want anything popping up. There's no excuse. <laughs> it, it's, it's that big of a deal. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, in just a moment, I'll, I'll be up front, and I, I recognize it's, it's not comfortable always to walk to the front. Get over it. <laughs> it's not comfortable showing weakness, showing uh, that you're falling in, in front of a, a room of people. <laughs> Get over it. So are they. Walk in obedience to him today. 
if the gospel message has convicted you, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you, and today is the day to walk in the freedom that he offers. So we're going to sing a song. Uh, we're going to praise him for who he is. And we're going to declare that he is worthy to open the scroll and redeem what's been lost. And during that time, I'm going to be up at the front. Uh, you can find me. You can find one of our elders. Uh, you can find a trusted, mature believer in Christ. And the time to respond is today. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. It is a firm foundation to build our hope. to look to for salvation. Father, I recognize my sinful nature. I see that when the Bible speaks of sin, it, it speaks of me. It's the same for all of us. Father, if that's where the story ended, we would be a people without hope. But Lord, we praise you that you have come that you are worthy to open the scroll, that you are worthy to redeem and able to redeem what has been lost, what has been broken, and restore it back to you. So Father, in a world that says there are so many ways to save yourself, we recognize that there's one, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, would we be broken over our sin? Would we come to the end of ourselves and, and come to a place of desperation, asking what's been asked in Revelation 5, who's, who's going to save us? And may we turn our eyes to you. Lord, you are worthy of our praise for the cross, for the empty tomb. And Father, we will sing your praise for all of eternity. You are worthy. Father, Holy Spirit, draw us in. Help us respond to the preaching of your word and to be made new through your gospel. Lord, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.